Cliff Burton was born on February 10th, 1962. He was best known as the bass player for Metallica between 1983 and 1986. The band had just released the highly successful Master of Puppets and were touring throughout Europe in promotion of the release. The tour bus that they were riding on had uncomfortable sleeping arrangements and on the night of September 26th, 1986, the members drew cards to decide who would get what bed. Cliff won out, sending Kirk Hammett to the front. A few hours later on, on the morning of September 27th, in a rural part of Sweden, the tour bus crashed, killing Cliff Burton, aged just 24. Cliff Burton would be remembered and honoured as a legend, as an influence to bass players and all musicians until this very day. He would be later inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Metallica would continue on and become the most successful metal band in history. This episode is pointless. What if episodes are pointless altogether? Because there are infinite outcomes. What if the bus had left at a different time? What if the driver got sick and was replaced by somebody else? What if the record label never signed Metallica? What if the Axis powers won World War II and rock and roll music was forbidden? See, there is infinite possibilities and infinite outcomes. It's a never-ending multiverse. But today, for the sake of telling a story, we're going to pick one point and then try to retro-predict what our world would look like today if the cards had fallen a different way that night. And I stress, this is just a fictional story using real-life characters. It's not intended to offend. I hope people don't find this in poor taste. The message is a simple one. See, life as we know it today is a result of unmeasurable amount of outcomes falling in an exact way. This is an example of if we change one thing, then everything we could ever imagine might be completely different. See, in this alternate universe, it wasn't a card game between Kirk Hammett and Cliff Burton. It was between all of them. Someone was bound to score the good bed that night. The game is simple. Whoever drew the highest card wins the best bed. Second and third best cards get the bunks, and the lowest card is up the front. Because he likes to be in control, Lars shuffles the deck, and then Lars also goes first. He picks up the card. Six of hearts. Not a great card. Cliff goes next. Two of clubs. Cliff Burton is out, and he's most likely getting the front. Kirk Hammett goes next and scores the queen of spades. Happy with his card, he gets his bags ready for the good bed. James Hetfield goes last. He's had far too many to drink and he accidentally picks up two cards. The first card, nine of hearts. The second card, ace of spades. Kirk calls him out. Can't have two cards, buddy. Draw again. Lars decides instead to put both cards face down on the table. He mixes them up. Whichever card he picks is then James Hetfield's card. And James Hetfield gets the ace of spades. James Hetfield has won the comfy bed. Ironically, James was happy sleeping in the back of the bus because the cold air hurts his throat, but he wasn't going to turn down a comfy bed for the night, especially since he'd been drinking. 
And as we know, like in our timeline, just a few hours later, the bus swerves off the road, flipping onto its side, throwing whoever is in the bed out the window. Like Cliff in our reality, James will not survive this. James Hetfield, the voice of Metallica, has just died a month after his 23rd birthday. The news rattles the rock world. Metallica aren't the megastars we know them as, but they're very well known, and Master of Puppets is one of the biggest albums of the year. People are shocked. His funeral is attended by music heavyweights. An instrumental version of For Whom the Bell Tolls is played by the band at his funeral. Little does everybody know, but this would be the last time that all three remaining members would share a stage together. The band decides to take six months off to mourn and to find themselves. On management's advice, Lars calls Kirk and Cliff about getting back into a studio to see if there's still a spark. But neither Kirk nor Cliff are ready, they need more time. And from here, this story will split in multiple directions, telling each member's future without Metallica. And it'll finish with the future of music without Metallica. First off, Kirk Hammett decides a change of scenery is needed. He takes a course on film at San Francisco State University. He spends three years on his studies and starts to play some blues-inspired music on the side. He releases an EP in 1988, far removed from the Metallica sound. The EP has some success, but it's mainly bought up by loyal Metallica fans. Without the hectic Metallica tour schedule, he has time to work on his film studies. In this timeline, he creates a Behind the Metal series, a look at the dramas and lives of metal from behind the curtain. It even has some success getting a season on MTV, but it will be mostly forgotten until YouTube arrives and gives it a new audience. See, while he's known for his time in Metallica, in this timeline, that does not have as much weight. So Kirk does a lot of session work in studios, produces a few local acts that he really likes. He has some appearances on radio and events, but his studio work and his film career are his main jobs going through the 90s. In 93, he becomes part of a new band called Blackthorn. It features Graham Bonnet of Rainbow fame and Chuck Wright from Quiet Riot. This band actually exists in our timeline with Bob Kulik on guitar. They release one album, and this sets Kirk Hammett down a path of always being the session guy. He will even join Guns N' Roses during the revolving door days of Gunners. Perhaps he even gets a songwriting credit on Chinese Democracy. To this day, he's playing in supergroups and side projects. He joins the Dead Daisies, and now he's a full-time touring member. His most successful film project is a documentary dedicated to the life of James Hetfield. It features everyone in metal. And the final scene is Lars Ulrich. He says, looking down the camera, Metallica could have been the biggest band in the world. I guess we'll never know. Now we move on to Cliff Burton. Like Kirk, he takes time off. He struggles with his friend's death. He hits the bottle hard, and it takes him maybe 18 months to finally turn a corner. He receives some counselling and begins to play bass again, albeit only with friends and never Metallica. It takes him six years before he steps foot on a stage again. In fact, six years to the day since James Hetfield's untimely death. September 27th, 1992. The location... Los Angeles Coliseum in front of 35,000 people. That night, Guns N' Roses would be headlining on their stadium tour. 
As Metallica never went past Master of Puppets, they were not part of this tour. Instead, Faith No More would join Guns N' Roses for the entire tour. And during Faith No More's set, Mike Patton announces a friend of the band, Cliff Burton. See, Cliff Burton went to school with Big Jim Martin of Faith No More, and even formed a band together in their high school years. For Cliff, this isn't a rebuilding of his career, rather a rebuilding his love for music. It's a feel-good moment, only soured by the fact that Lars Ulrich should have been there that night. More on that when we get to Lars. Cliff goes on and even records bass on Jim Martin's solo album, Milk and Blood, and makes several appearances with Faith No More in the future years. He's never inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He has his fans, but Metallica are not the legendary band they became. Just a great band from the 80s that had a few good albums. Because of this, Cliff Burton just lives out his life as a part-time musician. Happy. Finally, Lars. Lars Ulrich is the brains behind Metallica. He has the drive and vision. When it becomes clear Metallica will not continue, he immediately begins work on a new project. One of Metallica's biggest influences, Diamond Head, are on an extended hiatus in 1987. So Lars contacts Diamond Head members Sean Harris and Brian Tatler. The British heavy rockers fly to America for a jam and begin work on a new project. We'll give the band a name, Lady Justice. It's a blend of American and UK metal. Greg Christian of Testament is announced on bass. He actually was strongly considered for the role in Metallica when Cliff died in our timeline. Lady Justice releases two albums. Fans see it as a fitting tribute to James Hetfield. The first album even uses some unused Metallica riffs, getting Hetfield a songwriting credit. They have reasonable success, but cracks begin to appear in the early 90s. See, Lars is a controlling figure, even in Metallica. But with Lady Justice, the band is more of a democracy. Lars's vision does not always win, and this does not sit well with him. The band tour with Iron Maiden in September 1990, followed by a hectic headline run in 1991. They're announced as the openers for the Guns N' Roses stadium tour in 1992. But tensions are already high. Then the Gunners tour proves to be the breaking point, with the band hardly even speaking to each other. On August 8th, 1992, in Montreal, there's a pyro accident during soundcheck, causing second-degree burns to a crew member. This puts everyone on edge, and a seemingly irrelevant argument before the show turns nuclear, when just four songs into the set, Lars Ulrich walks off the stage. Sadly, this is only a few weeks before Cliff appears on tour with Faith No More. The press almost ignore what happened because Guns N' Roses that night put on a two and a half hour masterclass. But the weeks following, it's clear that Lars has been fired from Lady Justice. A legal battle ensues and for a while there's two bands named Lady Justice. Lars rushes a third Lady Justice album out with an all new lineup. The album is called Unload and it's a commercial flop. Critics blast the lack of songs and horrible production. The snare drum is laughed at for sounding like a trash can. See, in this lineup, Lars has 100% control over the sound. This means the drums are way up in the mix. In the following years, with the failure of Lady Justice, Lars's playing career is essentially over. But in 1993, he announces the launch of Damage Inc. Records. They signed two bands, a young band by the name of Korn, who have just sent their demo out to every label. 
and a relatively unknown band out of Iowa called Modifidius. This band featured a young Joey Jordison and Craig Jones. In this timeline, Lars signing Joey Jordison's earlier band means Slipknot never forms. Modifidius are talented, but they don't reach great success because without Metallica, classic metal has lost popularity. Nonetheless, Korn are a success, which gives the label more room to sign more acts. And Lars has creative control over the production. And again, drums become the focus of the sound. This time though, that sound is warmly received. A new sub-genre begins to follow. Drum-fronted metal. In 1994, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana tragically commits suicide. Lars reaches out to Dave Grohl. Although they've only met a few times at award ceremonies, both have a connection. Both drummers who lost their frontman in the peak of their careers. They bond and Lars convinces Dave Grohl not to make the same mistakes he had. Don't rush back into music. Grohl never forms the Foo Fighters. Instead, he takes a job at Damaging Records, further establishing drum-fronted metal. The next band to sign with Damage Inc would be a groove metal band with a DJ and a rapper named Fred Durst. This was Limp Biscuit, but in this timeline, the success of Korn and Lars's production sound has taken new metal in a totally different direction. Limp Biscuit debut with two drummers. The second drummer is playing industrial drum sounds, adding to the groove. And this is a defining moment in music. As music trends down this new path, drum-fronted metal bands go further and further away from classic metal. Some even go as far as being just two drummers, distorted bass and vocals. Traditional metal fans hate it, but with the help of downloading sites like Napster and Kazza, this genre explodes with a younger generation. And like in our timeline, Lars takes on Napster. But in this timeline, he's seen as a hero. He's not the Sour Grapes millionaire drummer of a megastar band. He's the former musician fighting for the next generation. And when Steve Jobs from Apple walks into the label with a new platform idea, Damage Inc. is the first label to sign on. Drum-fronted metal is the sound of legal downloading. Limp Biscuit are the face of Apple. Lars continues the label until this day, and while the label is now more of a heritage label, their influence on the world is felt. See, because music is unrecognisable to our timeline. Without Metallica's commercial success in the 90s, bands like Avenged Sevenfold, Bullet For My Valentine, even Sum 41 and Nickelback don't exist or sound unrecognisable to us. And further into the alternate future, post-drum-fronted metal bands will have techno-rave vibes. Industrial hip-hop becomes a genre, mixing the drum-fronted metal sounds with R&B, live distorted drums and soul vocals over bass and sample sounds. The Foo Fighters are never a band. Dave Grohl works at Damage Inc Records and then retires to own his own drum shop. Being the all-round good guy that he is, he also spends a lot of time working with young people who are suffering from mental illness, the very disease that led to Nirvana's demise. Taylor Hawkins, though, does have a solid career as the drummer for Alanis Morissette. And when he does decide to branch out into a solo career, he debuts as an indie pop singer. As Foo Fighters have never existed, Taylor Hawkins is instead influenced by pop and country music. 
In this timeline, Lars Ulrich is the only member of Metallica inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But not as a musician, as the influencing face of a generation of metal. His drumming abilities are almost forgotten to history. Metallica go down as a small footnote in the history of metal, totally eclipsed by Limp Bizkit and the late 90s resurgence of metal. This is not our timeline. This is a timeline that happened all because a deck of cards in a rural part of Sweden in 1986 dealt a different hand. Look, there wasn't meant to be a moral to this story, but if we're going to talk about fate, I'm just glad that we live in the universe where all the cards fell in the exact way so you and I and everyone else can experience rock and roll and Metallica. Metallica.